0: Welcome to Four Questions Four, the official podcast of Osgoode Hall Law School, presenting great conversations about legal education, the profession, and the law. Today, Mary Condon, the Dean of Osgoode Hall Law School, has four questions on equity, diversity, and inclusion in the legal sector for Kyle Elliott a 2016 Osgood graduate who currently serves as counsel, diversity, and inclusion for the international corporate law firm Blake, Castles, and Graydon, LLP, also known as Blake's. Now, here's Mary Condon.
1: Hello, everyone. So in in most parts of Canadian society these days, there's a lot of focus on three letters, E-D-I, equity, diversity, and inclusion and the university sector is no different. At Osgood, two of the key planks of our current strategic plan are first student access and success, and as well, advancing reconciliation and justice. As a law school, we know that EDI is the cornerstone of an excellent legal education, a just legal system, and a just society. So today, we want to ask one of our prominent alumni where the legal profession is at with respect to EDI, and what law schools can do to move progress along. My guest today, Kyle Elliott, has been committed to EDI since his student days at Osgoode. During those years, he served as president of the Osgoode chapter of the Black Law Students Association, and today he's counsel, diversity and inclusion, for Blake's, one of Canada's largest and best-known corporate law firms. So welcome, Kyle, and thank you so much for joining me today. My first question to you is an easy one. Tell me more about your background before and during law school and more about your current role at Blake's.
2: Sure. So thank you very much, Mary, for that warm introduction. Um, In thinking about my background, obviously you mentioned that I graduated from Osgoode, and I'm very proud of that fact. And while I was at Osgoode, I spent a lot of my time involved in community I was the president of Balsa Osgood. I volunteered with law and action within schools or laws. I volunteered at CLASP, the community legal aid support program. I was a peer counselor and I was a student ambassador. Uh, When I graduated from Osgood, I summered an article at a large Bay Street firm. Um, And then shortly after being called to the bar, I joined the board of the Canadian Association of Black Lawyers or CABLE, and I still presently serve on the board of CABLE. Uh, My life in practice started with the e discovery team here at Blake's, and I also spent some time litigating in house at a large telecommunications company. Um, But as you also alluded to, I've always been very involved in conversations around equity, diversity, inclusion in the workplace and in the profession. So I presently serve on the Equity Advisory Group. Uh, This group advises the Law Society of Ontario on issues affecting diverse communities in the profession. But even before law school and before entering the profession, I'd always been interested in the idea of building community and opening up doors um, for inclusion. And for me, I can't really talk about my background without talking about where I come from. I'm a first-generation lawyer. I'm the first in my family to attend university, the first in my family to attend law school. I was raised by a single mother on social assistance who spent so much of her time tirelessly giving back to community. And so the lessons I learned from my late mother, Eleanor Elliott, inspire a lot of the work I do. I'm from Ottawa, very proud of that fact, uh, the West End to be specific, Ritchie Street for those who know, Britannia Woods to others, and it's a low income public housing community. And before, I wa- before my mother passed, I watched her give as much of the time as she had to her neighbors. She ran the soup kitchen that was available to anyone in the community who needed a hot meal, the lunch program for school aged children to make sure they were fed through the day. She helped to keep the community food bank there operational for more than 20 years. And so for me, I always saw law as an opportunity to open up new doors and new possibilities, but I also knew that there had to be a way to use the tools law law gave me to build and strengthen community. And so even before the pandemic, I had conversations with the team at Blake's about how we could do more to broaden our recruitment strategy. And at first, I started helping out off the side of my desk while I was still practicing, and my role has grown quite a bit since then. Um, I'm now counsel diversity inclusion at Blake's. And when I share my title with people, I'm often met with a, a puzzled look, uh, recognizing that a lot of these law firm diversity professional roles are still new. I typically have to explain what it is that I actually do. So to explain my work, I break it down into three buckets. The first is really focused on outreach. I work very closely with our recruitment team um, in in Toronto, but also to an extent in our other offices, supporting the recruitment and and, and uh conducting outreach with equity deserving groups at the law school level. Um, I oversee a number of different undergraduate internships. And to a limited extent, we do outreach at the high school level as well. A really full circle moment. I mentioned I was a volunteer with LAWS when I was a law student. And now I oversee the firm's participation in the LAWS Mentorship Program, where we have around 30 high school students paired with lawyer mentors from November to May each year. Uh, So that's bucket one is the outreach piece. Bucket two is really focused on our internal equity, diversity and inclusion programs. And that's a very collaborative function. And I get to work with our firm managing partner, uh, Bryson Stokes. I get to work with our chief officer of professional resources, Mary Jackson, um, all of our different legal personnel directors, practice group leaders, and really anyone who's part of what I describe as the community of champions that exists at Blake's. Uh, Thinking about our policies and programming, thinking about opportunities for education and awareness, and supporting our affinity groups. I actually chair our Black Lawyers group, Black at Blakes, but I play a support role for all of our groups, including Pride at Blakes, Women at Blakes, East Asian at Blakes, and South Asian at Blakes. Now the third bucket is focused on client and community engagement. And so this is responding to client requests, since we're increasingly seeing clients take an interest in what level of commitment their external counsel has to equity, diversity, and inclusion. And it's also working with clients um, to learn from each other, finding opportunities to collaborate, to move the needle. And then many of our community partners have priorities that line up with our EDI goals. And so we support them through pro bono work or charitable giving. And so often I will be part of conversations with our community partners as well. So that's a little bit about my background, uh, my time at Osgood, and what I'm working on these days.
1: Well thank you so much uh, Kyle I certainly uh, appreciate you being willing to share your own personal background with our listeners I'm sure that they will find the the story uh, of your you know your personal journey into law school and then uh, beyond law school uh, very inspiring indeed so so thank you very much for that and with respect to your description of your role at Blake's, I also find that it's really interesting in the sense that it is uh, sort of a layered role. You're also thinking both about the pipeline into the legal profession on on one end, and then you're thinking about what happens internally within the law firm. And then, of course, you're thinking about your relationship with uh, the firm's relationship with its clients. So it seems like an extremely kind of rational and, and, and as I say, a a comprehensive approach uh, to the role. So um, given all of the experiences that you've described in terms of the different ways in which you have uh, been involved with aspects of the legal profession to date, and I know there's much more to come, uh, let me then ask you question two, uh, which is, you know, given uh, the perspective that you have, um, where does the Canadian legal profession stand today when it comes to uh, really uh, walking the talk of uh, equity, diversity, and inclusion?
2: So I think that's a really great question at a really great time. Um, I think we're at a really interesting point in time when it comes to conversations around equity, diversity and inclusion in the profession. Uh, I think generally across the board, these conversations have become more prominent in recent years. Obviously, on a global level, uh, the murder of George Floyd in 2020 saw many in society including, you know, legal organizations and those in the profession um, pay attention to these issues in ways that they haven't previously. And as a result, we've seen a lot more resources and commitments pop up. Um, So with that, I think, you know, there are a lot of reasons to be optimistic, but, you know, I'm a big believer in being as candid as possible. I think brutal honesty is so important to these conversations. And so we have to acknowledge that there's still so, so much work to do Um, across the board but also in this profession specifically. And, you know, I think we have to acknowledge that the starting point for the legal profession in Canada is really an exclusionary one. You know, at a point in time, if you weren't a man, if you weren't white, and if you weren't Christian, you weren't going to become a lawyer. And, you know, I think we've seen equity, diversity, and inclusion in the profession evolve in waves, uh, so to speak. You know, in the nineties, you start to see a bigger focus on gender. Uh, with Justice Bertha Wilson's task force in the 2000s. I think it's fair to say there was more of an impetus on creating opportunities for um, members of the LGBTQI2S plus community. And it feels like the conversation around racial, ethnic identity is still relatively novel. Um, And so we're now seeing more important conversations around the recruitment and advancement of Black, Indigenous, and people of color. And that's really, uh, really great to see. But, None of these challenges are new, and those that we've been working on for a little longer still require our ongoing attention and focus. Uh, I do think there has been a lot of important work done to identify the barriers that exist. As an example, you know, I point to the Law Society of Ontario's, um, this report has the longest name <laughs> imaginable, the final report of the challenges faced by racialized licensees working group, uh, which is a, a real mouthful. Uh, which was delivered, you know, back in 2016. Um, and so we, we know what the challenges are. I think there's still a lot of uh, new efforts to collect more and more data. And, you know, as lawyers, we love evidence. Uh, so I think that's important. I think implementing solutions has been another conversation altogether. And I think we're still stuck in a few places. Um, ultimately, though, at my core, I'm an optimist. I think you have to be in this type of role. You know, for me, I often say that a historical perspective allows us to be a bit more optimistic because we can more easily track the progress that has been made over time. But in a profession that's slow to change, our slow march towards progress just isn't enough. And while we've seen an increase in representation of women, people of color, members of the LGBTQI2S plus community, those living with disabilities, et cetera, we haven't really seen enough progress in regard to the experiences these groups are having. And unfortunately, we're still not getting the full participation we need in these important conversations. So I am optimistic that more of these conversations are taking place. Uh, We're seeing more and more roles like mine be created at large law firms and in large corporations. And we're seeing more resources being dedicated towards correcting historical inequities in the profession. We're seeing more workplaces take stock of their unique challenges, collecting data, investing in training programs, and adopting concrete organizational goals. But again, just being as honest as possible, there's still a lot of work to be done. Um, and so I, I, I'm, you know, encouraged to be working on some of that, but it's going to take a whole lot more than just folks like myself and is really going to take, uh, take effort and commitment from everybody.
1: Well, thanks very much for that really fulsome, uh, commentary Kyle i guess it really prompts me just because i'm curious to to ask a bit of a follow up uh, question to you uh, you know and you've mentioned the, the your own role in a big law firm you obviously have also had experience in house you know in, in order to properly address this question about where the the legal profession is at i wonder if you think that we need to sort of break it down into different components or different aspects of the legal profession, you know, the large law firms, the in-house roles, the judiciary, the public sector lawyers. Um, you know, is, is there anything that you've observed that uh, suggests that, you know, there are different uh, corners of the legal profession that are doing this differently or, or, or you know, have lessons that other corners could learn from?
2: That's a, that's a great follow-up question. I think, You know, there is um, definitely a reason to have some of these conversations within these different corners of the profession. Obviously, you know, a law school is going to face different challenges than a law firm. Um, You know, the regulators are going to face different challenges as well. But I think, you know, it's really important that we can't let these conversations be siloed. We have to recognize that if we're going to make progress, the best way to make that progress in you know as quick and efficient a way as possible is to learn from each other is to understand that we have to move forward together. So I do think you know, again, I encourage um, sort of everyone at the individual level to be thinking about how they can contribute to this to this, uh, let's say pro- this ongoing project of inclusion, but also you know all the institutional organizational players need to be thinking about what that looks like within their own walls. Um, But then not hoarding that information, sharing that information, we need to have open and honest conversations. We need to face the very difficult truths uh, head on and confront them. So um, I think there's a level at which it makes sense to take stock of what's happening um, internally within wherever you might be situated, but that can't be the end of the conversation.
1: Right. Right. No, I think that's uh, that sounds absolutely right, that uh, this is really something that requires a concerted effort, even if it looks a bit different uh, in different uh, in different areas of the profession. So then, you know, turning then to my third question, question three, uh, given your um, uh, your particular uh, perch uh, in, in a large law firm. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about how a law firm can create uh, an EDI program that achieves not just diversity, which is about, you know, looking around to to see all the faces that are present, but beyond that, real equity and real inclusion for everybody?
2: Yeah, so I think, you know, already just some of the challenges we've discussed, uh, the conversation needs to flow from there. But I also, I I love that uh, you kind of break out the diversity, the equity and inclusion, think about these different terms a little bit. I think it's really important to have that that frame of understanding um, because they all have to go hand in hand, but they're all a little bit different, right? They're different pieces of the puzzle. Diversity, as you you alluded to, is a fact of life. By nature, we're all different. And diversity is about the range of differences that exist. But inclusion doesn't necessarily happen so naturally. And so a diverse group is not necessarily an inclusive group. And unfortunately, there are often very different outcomes experienced among a diverse group. But equity as a process um, is so great because it allows us to identify and correct the policies, the practices and messages that lead to these unfair differential outcomes. And so the question of real equity and real inclusion is one that I think a lot of law firms and a lot of legal institutions are grappling with right now. And if I'm honest, again, going back to the importance of brutal honesty, uh, there aren't a lot of simple or easy answers. I think there are some issues that are easier to address than others, uh, the, prefer- the proverbial low hanging fruit. But thinking about real equity and inclusion is going to take some real hard work. And I've mentioned, you know, that it's important to recognize our starting point, you know, a profession that's built on historical injustice and inequity. And it's important to recognize that equity, diversity, inclusion is complex and there are a lot of nuances. And, you know, as widespread as the challenges are, truthfully, each organization faces its own unique challenges. And so it's a bit difficult to prescribe a course of treatments in a general sense that's going to apply to every organization, every institution, every law firm, every law school, but you know, I think there are uh, a few things that I, I certainly believe are, are absolutely necessary. And so thinking about a law firm's equity, diversity, and inclusion initiative uh, or strategy, it really needs to be people first and it needs to be people driven. And so that means our primary concern needs to be those who are most impacted and those who most bear the brunt of inequitable systems. Again, you know, I might sound like a broken record here, but if the starting point for this profession is one of exclusion, and specifically the exclusion of certain groups, then the methods we take to correct that exclusion has to start by focusing on the experiences of those groups. So that's number one. That's super, super important. Uh, We can't, can't skip over that. We can't lose sight of that. I think number two is, you know, there needs to be a real understanding of what it is that's holding us back. And that needs to be accounted for in the structure of these initiatives. Uh, when I say a real understanding, you know, it's a really hard look at historical inequities, but not just you know how they manifest historically; it's how they continue to manifest today. And so, looking at representation is certainly important, but it's also the workplace policies and the ways of operating that reinforce harmful norms. We need to look at you know these workplace structures, the balance of power, and all the barriers, biases, and boundaries. Um, that exist in order to think about how we can reimagine spaces and systems that really allow people to flourish. And more so than focusing on changing everyone's minds and attitudes, which, you know, ideally would be great. It's about building in structure and accountability into these programs that we put in place. Number three, I think is really, really also important and is something that I've been trying to focus on in my role at Blake's. And it's this idea that Everyone needs to understand we can all play a role in promoting equity, diversity, inclusion, and that we must all take action. And that action piece is so important Um, in our workplaces, in our communities, and really all our spheres of influence. And so, you know, a lot of terminology that might accompany this concept, but I think a lot of people are familiar with the idea of allyship. Um, And I think allyship as a framework is so important. You know, I lead a lot of sessions on allyship. Uh, at the firm and for our clients. And I will often describe myself as a professional ally of sorts. And I recognize that yes, my role requires me to be a leader on a variety of issues that affect uh, you know, a variety of different populations. But it's this idea that I don't necessarily need to be a member of all these groups in order to be a champion for inclusion. You know, Sometimes it means I shouldn't necessarily be the loudest voice, but you know, it's for folks to realize that you don't need to be a person of color to fight for racial equality you know, as a man, you can still advocate for women and non-binary folks when it comes to gender issues. If you're straight, you can be a champion for members of the LGBTQI2S plus community. And what's so great about this, this framework, and you know, this, this concept is that it really enables those who are not part of underrepresented groups to understand their critical role in system change, uh, to be an advocate for their colleagues, to help everyone feel a greater sense of belonging. And you know, I think in that way, create true and systemic change, uh, because we have to remember that issues of exclusion are not limited to a p- particular community. You know, it can't just be that we have uh, our Asian colleagues talking about anti-Asian racism. It can't just be that we have uh, women talking about gender issues. It can't be that we just have, you know, the L- our LGBTQI2S plus colleagues looking to address homophobia that exists. Because these inequalities divide and destroy the entire system. And so if we're going to correct these inequalities, we all need to be united in this effort. And then I guess the, I'll, I'll, I'll give one more thing, recognizing that you know, I did say you can't really have a prescriptive course of treatment for for everybody, but um, I also think you know it's this understanding that implementing equity diversity inclusion programs, you have to recognize that this is ongoing work. There is no one and done training that's going fix, to fix these issues. There aren't necessarily even finish lines or endpoints here. You know, going back to that idea that inclusion doesn't ha- necessarily happen naturally, we're always going to need to be working to keep equity, diversity, inclusion at the forefront of how organizations function. And so there's always going to be a need to do, do this work.
1: Well, you know that's a lot of food for thought, Kyle. Thank you so much for obviously this is a reflection of your own kind of deep thinking about these issues in your current role. Um, Let me just ask you one follow up uh, because uh, some of what you've mentioned is is really um, so interesting. And again, this may be a bit of a provocative point, uh, but just to your your the point the important point you've made about accountability uh, for you know, really uh, maintaining a, a, a long-term commitment uh, to EDI and, and your point about allyship. I have, I did notice recently somebody making the point that, you know, for, for some of those initiatives to really get traction, that they need to be recognized as part of, you know, the material compensation that people get for uh, their work within firms. So, you know, if you, if you do, if you go out of your way to do a lot of mentoring to really, um, put time into allyship work. Is that something that you think the law firm should actually materially recognize uh, as a component of uh, of the way that they do compensation within the firm?
2: I do. I absolutely do. Um, You know, I think, and I think more so than anything, people understand the business imperative for equity, diversity, inclusion. And so if we understand that it's a benefit to business, we have to be attaching some value to it. You know, I think at many levels, it should be thought about in terms of compensation, in terms of how we're acknowledging the work that people are doing. There are a lot of people in, um, you know, in these organizations who care about equity, diversity, inclusion, just like me, but they're not getting paid for it. They do it off the side of their desk. Um, It's an extra commitment. It's an extra burden. And I absolutely think that should be accounted
1: for Great. Well, thank you so much uh, for those comments, Kyle. So now I'm going to turn the lens back to us here at Osgood. Um, You know, I I think, as you know, from your experience of being a student here, we we are certainly aware and convinced at Osgoode that EDI in the legal profession begins uh, in the law school. And as, that's why at Osgoode, we've been working for many years to, to build that diverse and inclusive culture. More recently uh, in the last year, we've established a number of uh, financial awards to help support black and indigenous students, you know, get going back to that point about access that I mentioned earlier, and even going back to 2007, we introduced a holistic admissions policy that goes beyond grades, beyond LSAT scores, uh, to consider the unique experiences and perspectives that applicants could bring to Osgood and there and beyond Osgood to the legal community more generally. But that brings me, of course, to our final question. Four, uh, you know, if we can benefit from your experience, Kyle, the fourth question is: What more could law schools be doing to improve? EDI in the legal sector?
2: So I think that what more question is so fundamentally important. Um, A big part of my role, I think, is, you know, what more could we be doing? And I think law schools need to be asking themselves, what more can we be doing? And I'm happy to see that, uh, you know, Osgood seems to be thinking about this, you know, I'm obviously very glad to see that Two of the pillars in Oz's good strategic plan are centered around addressing systemic injustice and removing barriers to access. But I think, you know, in thinking about this question, what more, there's a few different angles um, that we can consider it from, you know, how can schools themselves be more inclusive, which in itself helps promote equity diversity inclusion in the profession. And how can schools do more to prepare students for the realities of practice from an, from an equity diversity inclusion lens? Um, you know, so that, that, first one, obviously, there are very obvious issues to accessibilities and barriers to entry. And, you know, it's great to see that there are different financial supports that are being thought of. Um, It's also great to see that these are being thought of along, um, you know, different racial and ethnic lines, gender lines, because we know that, you know, often socioeconomic status, unfortunately, falls along these lines as well. but I think every school should be thinking about this, you know, and, and the very obvious reality that tuition costs are just way too high. Uh, you know, as a first-generation lawyer from a low-income background, you know, it's really easy for me to reflect on my own journey and think about how tough it was to get into law school and then to overcome those financial barriers that existed. Uh, I'm thankful that I benefited benefited from, you know, a very robust bursary program at Osgood, and, you know, a number of different financial aid options. But I think even just that initial high cost, um, you know, that sticker price naturally limits who's even going to consider applying to law school. Um, You know, I remember when I started started law school, I fully made the decision knowing I'm going to do this and I might end up being a homeless law student. And many aren't going to bother going that route, obviously, um, because that's quite, quite the decision-making uh, matrix, right? If you're thinking about, okay, I'm gonna get this this legal education, I'm gonna get this degree, but I might have to forego the basic necessities. And I remember, you know, having to make decisions between paying tuition, buying groceries and paying rent. Um, but I won't get into all of those stories because I think we all know how affordability impacts who is able to access a legal education. And then in turn, what effect that has on representation in the profession since again, we know that socioeconomic disparities often align with racial, ethnic, and gender disparities, but then I think you know when students get to law school, you know what does the environment look like? You know these are questions we should be asking ourselves you know is it is it a safe space? Is it physically accessible? Is it a psychologically safe environment? you know on that point, I think there's a number of conversations to be had about mental health from an inclusion standpoint, but I think A lot of us are thinking about this as well, which is great to see. Um, But, you know, I think the main thing here is that there needs to be work done to address these barriers. And I think that is already pretty obvious to most and many schools like Osgood are looking to address these issues. And so it's that question of what more and continuously thinking about what more, because I don't think the costs are coming down unless... uh, you know, there's there's information I'm not aware of. So there's often going to be that, there's always going to be that need to ask what more. But then, you know, I think as we think about the law school environment and the curriculum, how much of that is preparing law students for what lies ahead? You know, I think about the realities of how law firms and legal organizations operate. And it's great to see that there, there is some change being made. But, you know, we talked about progress being slow. And so what can lawyers expect in their day-to-day practice um, you know, is this something that schools are always preparing students for? And again, especially from an equity, diversity, inclusion lens. You know, if we, I go back to the, the working report from the Law Society identifying challenges faced by racialized licensees, if we know that racial and gender identity can lead to lawyers reporting lower success rates and finding articling in uh, finding suitable employment and getting access to the same career advancement opportunities as others, if gender, you know, language where you, you you were born is likely to impact your ability to per- build a professional network, if these things mean prejudice might be a very real source of career disadvantage, are we talking about this in law school? Are we spending time thinking about how to confront these issues and how to prepare students to confront these issues? You know, I feel really fortunate to have attended Osgoode. I I'm, you know, often talk about Osgoode with a lot of pride. Uh, I was very involved in the community there, and um, got to really develop and display my leadership skills. I felt the faculty and administration did a really good job of empowering students and, and still does do a very good job of empowering students to be leaders. But I think too often, you know, and this is across the board, conversations around equity diversity and inclusion are being led by students and often, you know equity deserving or equity denied student groups who are already shouldering so much of the responsibility. And so, you know, I think going back to this idea, there's a few common threads, right? Looking to learn from others. I think there should be conversations that take place, you know, across across the spectrum uh, between the schools, but we should also be looking to learn from, from others wherever we can. You know, in, in my work, I'm always looking to learn from others. Just yesterday, I was part of a conversation with, EDI leaders from other firms. Uh, we actually meet monthly, and it's you know, really fantastic that there's this community that encourages knowledge sharing. But I'm also often looking to successes that have been had in different jurisdictions, like the US and the UK. I know very recently, the American Bar Association just approved a policy that requires law schools to incorporate anti-bias, cross-cultural competency, and anti-racism training into the curriculums. And you know, not only does this promote inclusion within the law school environment, It's also a really important foundation for these important ideas in the profession and how lawyers practice. And, you know, obviously that's one idea. It's an interesting one. It's not a cure all by any means, but it's just an example of thinking about how we can use this time in law school to think about how we can address um, the issues that future lawyers will have to grapple with. And one that I think, you know, in in thinking about that, what more can we do, uh, you know, is an example that I, I think should inspire us to think about, the changes that can be made in law schools up here as well.
1: Well, that's fantastic, uh, Kyle. I I really appreciate uh, the sort of candor and the, uh, you know, and the comprehensiveness again of, of the, the ways in which you suggested that law schools need to be accountable for uh, you know, for the initiatives that they are engaging in and the, the speed and, and sort of, again, robustness of those initiatives uh, as they're moving them along. So I certainly hope that you and I can continue this conversation, um, you know, in, in other forums as we, as we move forward. So thank you again so much. It's been really fascinating to get your insights. You certainly, I think, have given our listeners a sense of renewed hope uh, for the progress that the legal profession can make in the near future uh, in terms of where we are today. So thank you so much for, for giving us the benefit of your insights. Take well, it's
2: care. Really my pleasure to be a part of this conversation and to be invited to be a part of this conversation. So so thank you as well.
0: You've been listening to Four Questions Four by Osgood Hall Law School. We hope you'll join us again next time.